This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. But uh, you probably know these guys just had lunch, so they're kind of, might be a little drowsy. <laughs> they're they're going to be joining in like one, one at a time. Well, let's see if we can stir them up. <laughs> okay. Well, it's 2.59 and we will start the broadcast like officially in about one minute. One minute. And the topic is going to be ethics and software development. I kind of um, uh, um, dipped my feet into ethics and software development on the web and I found several pieces through IBM, which is, I think it's kind of uh, something that is very related. And I found articles on, on ethics and software development at um, IBM.com as well. For some, for some reason, there's uh, there's something going on there. You, I, did you mention something when we first spoke about IBM or not, or not really? I don't think so. No, no, you didn't, no. It's just that for some reason I was thinking, did he or didn't he? Because I see, I saw a lot of articles on. Uh, okay, all right. Um, I think we can get it uh, officially started, and this is the first time that uh, in the first minute, the first thirty seconds of the broadcast, we have the first thirty viewers. <laughs> so this is kind of this is going to be interesting. Okay, well we are. Um, Starting the broadcast, we're broadcasting live from Nearsoft's Mexico City office. Here's a big greeting to my uh, friends and co-workers in Hermosillo, in California, and in Chihuahua. And as you probably know, we we are honored to have here as a, as a guest, this is a featured guest speaker, Mr. Robert Martin, a.k.a. Uncle Bob which, uh, I mean, who, I'm sorry, who has kindly given me his permission to address to him as Bob. So I guess that everyone can do the same thing as well. And the topic that uh, has been um, uh, chosen for today's uh, Dojo Live is going to be ethics in software development. I think that's going to be, there's going to be a lot of food for thought and uh, right now, uh, well, enough of the introductions. And I don't think that Uncle Bob needs any, any more introductions. <laughs> Everyone knows uh, here knows who he is. So, uh, Bob, I'm going to turn on the, the mic and the camera to you. Again, welcome to Dojo Live. And uh, I hope that uh, the guys here enjoy the show. Thank you. Thank you very there, much. There you go. And I presume we're all set to go. We're all set to go, Bob. All right. So, um, ethics in software. Uh, what a what a boring sounding topic. So let's <laughs> set the stage here. Um, how many? How often do people in the civilized world interact with software? How many times per hour, or per minute, or per second? are individuals in our society interacting with software and the the answer to that requires you to look around the room first of all you've got probably a smartphone somewhere nearby uh, most people interact with their smartphone fairly frequently um you pull it out to check facebook you pull it out to check uh twitter you check your email maybe you've got some other apps on that phone um, so you're probably interacting with that software fairly frequently. But then look around elsewhere. Uh, what appliances are on the wall that have software in them? Do you have a thermostat on the wall that has software in it? Do you have a speaker uh, on the wall that has software in it? Is there something else that has software in it? Look out uh, in the roads, uh, those cars out there. How much software is in those cars? Uh, you might be surprised to find that a modern car has uh, 150, 150 million lines of code in it. And the, uh, the code in that car is controlling rather large amounts of the car. My wife, for example, has a car. 
which has a front-looking camera, and it can see the lane markings on the road. And if you slowly drift over the lane markings, it will tug the steering wheel back in, uh, thinking that maybe you've fallen asleep. The software in the car controls the steering wheel. And if you're a software developer, that should terrify you because you know. Most of the people who drive in that car don't know. But you know probably what that code looks like. We, software developers, have grown up over the last 50 years from being almost completely unknown to uh, being the villains and heroes. For example, uh, remember um, Jurassic Park, the movie. The villain in that movie was Dennis Nedry, a programmer who, whose evil plot was what really destroyed Jurassic Park. <laughs> or um, think about um, um, the, the Minecraft game. Um, I was in Stockholm not too long ago, and I, I met with the guys who made Minecraft. The company's name is Mojang. And I, I hung out with them for a while. I gave them a few lectures. And then, and then we all went out for beer. And we were sitting outside in a beer garden in Stockholm. And um, just minding our own business, chatting. And a young boy runs up. And he's an American boy. And he happened to be visiting Stockholm. But he runs up and he recognizes one of the software developers. His name was Jeb. And he says, are you Jeb? And Jeb says, yes, I am. And the boy is all over him and wanting his autograph. And he's just starstruck that he's managed to interact with one of the developers of Minecraft. Software developers have become heroes. Heroes to the youth. And that's an interesting, interesting outcome. We are now the villains and heroes. But let's take this further. Some of you may have been aware of what happened at Volkswagen not too long ago. Uh, somebody at Volkswagen snuck some nasty code into that car, code that could detect if the car was being tested for emissions. And if the car was being tested for emissions, then this code. Um, put the motor into a mode where it would release less pollutants. If you took it off the test, uh, then the car was put back into a mode where it was higher power and higher performance, but released lots of emissions. And when this was discovered, of course, the, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States got very upset and called Volkswagen on the carpet and forced the CEO of Volkswagen to testify before Congress. And uh, this, uh, this CEO got in front of Congress and said, well, we don't know how this happened. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't know it was there. It was just some rogue software developers who did this for whatever reason. Software developers are now the scapegoats, the people who can be thrown under the bus, the people who can be blamed. And we, software developers, have attained a level of awareness in our society. They are aware that we can be villains. They are aware that we can be heroes. They are aware that businesses can point their fingers at us and blame us for things. Now, I mean, the accusation of that CEO is completely absurd, right? It was not some rogue developers. And it, it, clearly, this was done by people at higher levels in the company. However, some programmers wrote that code. Some programmers sat down with their fingers on the keyboard and they wrote the code that cheated. 
Did they know they were writing it? I'd say the odds are pretty good that they knew that they were writing it. And it's very difficult for me to understand how they could not know precisely what they were doing. In my estimation, those programmers should be drummed out of the profession. They should no longer be programmers. They should not be allowed to be programmers because they have violated the honor of programmers. They have violated ethics. Now, here's the problem with that. We don't have a profession. We have no organization that outlines what, uh, what, who is in and who's not in this profession. We have no set of standards that defines what our profession is. We have no set of disciplines that defines what our profession is. Most programmers, in fact, all programmers are just programmers. We got into this because we like to code. How many of you um, remember how you got into programming? Uh, maybe some of you took it in school or maybe somebody, some of you uh, learned it at home. I'll tell you how I got into it. I was 12. My mother purchased for me a small plastic computer. Let me show it to you. I keep it on a shelf. Here it is. Little plastic computer. I keep it on a shelf in a place of honor. It still works. Uh, I don't want to mess with it too much because it's fragile at this point. I mean, it is um, 50 years old. Um, notice that it's got little flip-flops, and I'll show you the camera. See, they can go from zero to one. There's three of them. And uh, it's got these little metal rods here. Those metal rods are AND gates, and they can fit into slots on the flip-flops. And you program this device by slipping little metal tubes, or little uh, plastic tubes, excuse me, on the pegs here. And if you do that properly, and then if you turn the crank, the uh, bits will change position. This is a three-bit finite state machine. And you can program it to count. You could count from uh, zero up to seven. You can program it to count from seven down to zero. You can program it to add two bits to give you a sum and a carry. And there's several other programs you can put in here. When I was 12, I learned how to program this device. I learned how to make it do what I wanted it to do. This for In order to get there, I was forced to learn Boolean algebra. I was forced to learn Venn diagrams, Carnot maps, uh, Boolean equations, uh, ands over ors, De Morgan's theorem, all that stuff, so that I could write out the Boolean equations for the bit transitions and then reduce them to lowest terms and put the little tubes on the pegs that corresponded to those equations. And uh, I had a program in mind. It was called uh, Mr. Patterson's Computerized Gate. And I wrote the equations down and I reduced them to lowest terms and I put the tubes on the pegs and I turned the crank and the little machine did what I wanted it to do. And I was a programmer after that. I, the power had hit me. I knew I could make this dumb little three-bit computer do anything it was possible to do. And I wanted to do that with more and more and more computers. I was a programmer. I felt the power of that machine. Many of you may have felt the same thing. We all got into this business because we like to code. We didn't get into it because we thought there was an ethical problem. We didn't get into this to solve ethical issues. We didn't get into this because we wanted to be in a profession. But here we are. And now, look around the room, look out on the roads, look at your smartphone, look at everything else, and realize something fundamental. We control the devices that everyone uses on a second-by-second -second basis. And then there are other systems that we control. We write the code for the banking systems. We write the code for the insurance systems. 
We write the code for the traffic systems. We write the code for the air traffic control and the airport. We write the, the code inside the airplanes and in the cars. We write the code inside of government that implements laws. We write the code for everything. We rule the world. Other people think they rule the world. Other people think they write the rules, but what they really do is they give those rules to us and we write the real rules, the rules that run in the machines that run everything else. Nothing happens in our society without us. And nobody quite realizes this yet. We don't quite realize it. Society doesn't quite realize it, although society is becoming aware gradually that they depend on us for the existence of their civilization, for the, the continuance of their civilization. They depend on us. And bit by bit, society will get more and more scared of this because there are no controls over us. Look at what happened to VW. Or if you want other stories, look at what happened to um, Toyota. A couple of software developers at Toyota made a mistake. It was an honest mistake, a mistake that any programmer could make. And it killed several people because the, um, the software they wrote in their automobiles had a fatal flaw that on very rare occasions caused the car to accelerate out of control and made the brakes unusable. And people crashed into trees and lampposts and there were several people killed and many more people injured. You and I did not get into this business to kill people, but software is killing people now. Or uh, think of what happened to Knight Capital. Knight Capital, a company in New York, a trading firm, a software developer there was um, told to add a new feature to the system, which he did, uh, and he, um, he tested it. He went out at night and, and put it into one little server to test it, and he tested it carefully, and it worked. What he was unaware of, however, was that the change he made to the code inadvertently caused the flow of control to pass through some dead code, code that had been left in the system but hadn't executed for years. And you know how this happens. We don't always delete all the code that doesn't execute. Well, that's what happened to him. And this bad code, this old code, made bad trades and he wasn't aware of it. And even though there was only one server running on the network late at night because he was testing, other traders on the network smelled a profit opportunity. And in the next 45 minutes, they raided that company for $450 million. The CEO woke up the next day, he didn't have a company anymore. The vultures had already come in and bought it out from under him. One software guy doing one not even very dumb thing, $450 million. This is what's happened to us. So what do we do about it? Uh, what do we as programmers do about this fact that we are having an impact that we didn't ask for and that society really didn't realize it was giving us? But here we are. We have this really huge impact on our society. What should we do about it? Should we do anything? So let's answer that question first. If we do nothing, then one day, probably soon, some poor software guy is going to do some probably not very dumb thing and 10,000 people will die. And you can imagine what it would be. It's not that hard to think of a scenario where some poor software dude writes an if statement a little bit wrong and manages to kill 10,000 people. And when that happens, the politicians of the world will rise up in righteous indignation, as they should, and they will point their finger at us, not at our bosses, because our bosses will blame us. We've already seen VW do that. They will point their fingers at us because it was our fingers on the keyboard. And they will ask us the question, how could you have let this happen? 
and we'd better have an answer for them. Because if our answer is that our bosses made us do it, or that the schedule was really tight and we had to hurry, or something like that, that's not going to cut it. And the politicians of the world will do the only thing they can do. They will pass laws. They will regulate us. They will tell us what languages we have to use and what platforms we have to use, what operating systems we have to use, what courses we have to take, whose signatures we have to get, what phases we have to go through, what processes we have to walk through. All of these things will be forced upon us by law. We could very easily wind up being civil servants working for the government. And this is something that I would like to forestall, something I would like to prevent. But in order to prevent it, we need to have a profession. And what is a profession? A profession is a set of standards and a set of disciplines. What might those standards be? What might those disciplines involve? I'm going to run a few slides here. I'm going to put a few slides up on the screen. Let's see if I can make this fancy uh, Google Hangout software work. <laughs> Thank and you. We appreciate it. I presume at this point you are now seeing a slide that says expecting professionalism. I'm going to take you to a world where I am your new CTO. And this would be a bad world because I should never be anybody's CTO. I'm just a programmer. I want to write code and I like to talk to people. But let's say that I was your new CTO anyway. I'm going to tell you what I expect from you. And here's the thing about that the expectations you're going to hear me ask for. Half of your brain is going to say that that's nuts. And the other half of your brain is going to say, well, of course, that's perfectly reasonable. The first expectation is real simple. We're not going to ship bad code. I used a nasty word here. I won't say the word out loud, but you all know what it is. And probably some of you can look at that word and say, yeah, I've shipped that before. We're not going to do that. First standard, the first discipline, we will not ship code that we have not tested, that we do not know works. We are not going to ship code just because the schedule says we have to. If the schedule is tight, we will cut out features, but we will not ship code that we have to cross our fingers over and hope works. We are not going to ship code that has an internal structure that is so bad that we cannot modify it easily. We're going to ship good code. Now, this is just basic professionalism. This is not something surprising. And if you think about it carefully, this is what everybody, including all the managers, expect. And you may say to yourself, well, no, they don't expect this at all. They want me to just ship something as fast as possible. They don't want it to be good. Are you kidding me? Of course they want it to be good. They're expecting it to be good. They're expecting what you write is good code. Most of these managers have no idea what bad code is or what bad code could do. They're just expecting good code from you. It's up to us to communicate to everybody that the code we ship has to be right. It has to be good. I'm going to slip back here into uh, regular mode just to check to make sure that everything worked properly. Did you see that slide? Did everything work properly? Yes. Yes, actually, the, the slides came through just fine. Um, I would like to take advantage of this tiny moment to just pause for a while, uh, for a short minute, and uh, because I have, we have a whole bunch of questions, Bob. So I don't know if, you, if we can go about them and some comments. And can I? I think you're able to read them. 
Oh, but, I don't uh, have them at the moment. Let's see if there's a way I can I can get them. Yeah, I mean, I, I can read them back to you. That's okay. Uh, but uh, you're supposed to have uh, Q&A access to the Q&A window. You can should be able to see it. But meanwhile, of the well, we have some comments and some questions. You read them to me, and I'll I'll respond. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's yeah that that'll be easier. Uh, well, this is just a word of hello. He uh, he's uh, from uh, Gustavo Serrano, one of my one of the star developers here, and uh, he says hello from Mexico. This is Gustavo Serrano, aka Fru. I don't know what I still don't know why we call him Fru, but. We call him, everyone comes call him through. Working for for near sub. Thank to thank you to your books and videos. They helped me a lot in my career. So that's a thank you note. Uh, also, Gustavo is asking, when will you come to Mexico? Please visit us. <laughs> there you go. So there are many reasons why I would like to visit Mexico. I can I can imagine. So we'll work on that. Okay. What do you think? Uh, well, this is a question by another one of my coworkers in, in uh, he, he's in Monterrey right now, and um, he says he's. This question was placed here um, uh, a few minutes ago when you were talking, and he says, "What do you think those programmers should have done?" So I assume that this this was referring to one of the anecdotes you were you were mentioning about right before when you showed us your plastic computer. Okay, so if you if you can recall, oh then, yeah, I, uh, I know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the programmers at Volkswagen, mm -hmm. who um, who put the bad code, the the cheating code. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for us to think, well, you know, their bosses told them to do it, so they had to do it. And my answer to that is, no, they didn't have to do it. If necessary, they should have quit. And this is part of having a profession. A profession is something where you have standards that that you cannot cross even if it means your job you cannot cross them that's what professional ethics really means uh, and and if you are going to enter into a profession you have to understand that that's the cost of having a profession now we're going to have a profession one way or the other because either we're going to establish it ourselves or it will be forced upon us by government and either way we're going to get these this set of standards imposed upon us. I hope we can impose them upon ourselves. And after that, anybody who crosses the line is going to be out of a job anyway. So what those programmers should have done was to refuse. And if that refusal meant that they lost their jobs, so be it. Tough line, but that's how it goes. <laughs> okay. Uh, Julio, I, I think that has answered. I hope that has certainly answered your question. Julio, please confirm. Now, here's another one by, again, another one by, by Julio. Uh, he says, have you heard about El Partido de la Red, which is a political party in, in Argentina based on the web? And if so, what's your opinion on it? How do you think engineers can help to have a better government? I think that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I know nothing about it. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> nothing about it. Well, there's always good old there's always good old Google, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Probably look it up. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, another question again. Uh, Julio is asking, "What do you think?" I oh, went. Well, no, I'm sorry. I just read that one. Uh, okay. And Gustavo, he says. So I think this is a crucial point to be. This is. I think he he's going back to the to the subject to the topic of ethics and software development. He says uh, this is the crucial point to be faithful to our moral. Conscience, consciousness, or to be intimidated by fear, or even even uh, bribe money, or payment, or cash. You know, I, I don't know. That's that. I think I'm just interpreting what he said, and I think that's what he meant. I agree. Okay, excellent, good, thank you. Um, Gustavo says, how, uh, how. How can developers in highly regulated environments, such as banks or CMMI com companies, can change their environment mindset for doing better job, for doing better, basically? We have a, a big problem in our, in our industry because of the lack of professionalism, because we have not instituted our own standards. Companies have responded by imposing process and imposing other groups upon us. For example, a QA group. You know, why do companies have quality assurance groups at all 
The answer to that is because software developers weren't doing a very good job and they had to hire other people to check on them. Um, now we're stuck with this. We're stuck in this quagmire. We're stuck with the ideas of CMM and CMMI and, and lots of process and quality assurance groups and sign-offs and all of that stuff. And bit by bit, we're going to have to remove the parts that don't make sense and reinforce the parts that do. This has been the goal of the Agile movement. The Agile movement throughout the world has been an attempt to try to take apart the, the heavy, onerous processes that, that got imposed upon us and that we, to some extent, imposed upon ourselves and replace them with more flexible, more fluid processes that make it easier for us to do our jobs and make us more responsive to customers. I presume that that work of the Agile processes will continue. At least I hope so. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for your response. Here's another one. Uh, he says, uh, oh, there's another one by Gustavo. I think Gustavo is asking a lot of questions, which is very good. I think he says, I think ethics should be based on human dignity. I mean that every person is worth just just for being a person and be considered as an end in her or himself and not for other goals. What do you think? That's that's his question. I, you know, I think that's a, a, a standard standard component of any ethical practice is that you, you have to look at humans as valuable, worthwhile people. You look at, you look at humans as individuals and you respect them. Um, one way of saying that is, is real simple. Uh, never lie. And if you're a software developer, don't write code that lies. Don't write code that participates in a lie. Okay. Don't write code that allows other people to lie. Um, that's certainly what happened at, my, at, at VW. That code lied. It allowed, allowed other people to lie through its agent. And that violates this respect of humans, brother. So, you know, I agree with him and, and you know, want him to continue thinking. Okay, thank you. Here's another one, and, this, and I think this links us back to the Volkswagen case. Uh, Julio is asking, what about programmers working, for example, for NSA, for the National Security Agency, spying on, on its own citizens? Should they also quit? Uh, well, this becomes an issue of um, of some judgment. If you are very opposed to what the NSA did, yes, of course you should quit. If, on the other hand, you believe that what the NSA was doing was necessary and a, a way to protect the uh, the people of the world from evil people who want to do harm, then you would continue. Uh, both arguments can be made, and I would leave that into the hands of the individual programmers. But there is no argument that any can, anyone can make that the programmers at Volkswagen were doing something good for humankind. So th I think that's a very black and white ethical question, whereas the NSA is uh, less black and white. It's harder to make that determination. Clearly, countries must do things to protect their citizens, that sometimes seem to break the rules. Um, should they or should they not? And everybody has to make that decision for themselves. Okay, so that's where they, they're going to have to face it. Uh, to empower themselves to, to make that decision, to make that call. Definitely. Okay. Jorge Hernandez. What role do you see formal verification methods and tools playing in the future? <laughs> so um, I happen to be a, a person who believes very, very strongly in uh, testing discipline. One of the formal verification methods. I am not a person who believes in the, in the methods of writing mathematical proofs for software which is another of the formal verification methods. I prefer the testing approach because I think it's far more reliable. 
Um, and because of that, I am a, an adherent to a discipline called test-driven development. Some of you will have heard of this. It seems to me to be incredible that any software developer would release code without testing it. And by testing it, what I mean is testing every line, every if statement, every loop, both its continuation and its termination, every, every path through the code, not every combination of paths, but every path through every if statement ought to be tested and not tested manually but tested by an automated repeatable process, uh, which means code. Um, so it seems to me to be uh, irresponsible for any developers to release code that they have not run through an automated suite of tests that tests everything. That would be a formal verification method that I could get behind. I want everybody doing that. And, I, and it seems to me that that if we don't do that, we're going to get ourselves into very, very bad trouble with government and legal agencies in the nearest future. Okay, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. I'm still. I'm sorry. I was just still reading a whole the stream of questions that is showing here uh, up in my window for you. Um, let now let's see, um, Miguel Coba. He's uh, another one of, of uh, our developers here in Mexico City. He's asking, uh, can you talk about respect to privacy issues and builds like CISA that, that give the government access to people, to people's info, but people seldom has access to government info? <laughs> uh, well, I think that goes back to the NSA question earlier. Um, do, are there government agencies that have to be able to um have information intelligence information the answer to that is yes that it is a necessary part of of living in a world such as ours um how far they take it is a matter of some concern and and every individual has to make their own choices to how much they want this to happen political parties will align on either side of that boundary and and whichever political party you belong to you're going to follow that mode of ethics all righty then, that's, um, well, Miguel, that's your uh, answer right there. Okay, here's another one. <clears throat> Again, Gustavo, he is asking, what is the role of culture in, in the context of today's discussion, or how can we use it? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, the culture of software developers has been relatively negative. Um, our culture over the years has become that of um, the carefree geek, the, uh, the Twinkie eating, cola drinking, uh, <laughs> relatively um, socially inept um, person who um, doesn't get along with other people really well and wants to focus more on machines. That culture is negative. An even more negative aspect of our culture is that most programmers, by a huge factor, are male. Our culture has, for some reason or another, expelled females. Even when females are, in, in certain countries, excelling in other technical domains, they stay out of software. The number of women in software is vanishingly small. It's down in the two or three percent category. And that's because of a culture uh, in software development. What is that culture? Um, geez, that's a really good question. Why is it that women in particular don't want to be part of the ranks of, of software developers? Or, or if they do want, they leave it? Uh, I presume it's because we software developer men treat it like a boys club of some kind. We enjoy <laughs> having a bunch of men around and we talk about men things and, and we don't uh, acknowledge the existence of the other sex in our ranks. That's something we're going to have to resolve. And it's something of an irony 
because 50 years ago, half the programmers in the world were women. There weren't very many programmers in the world at all, but half of them were women. It was a woman who wrote the first compiler. It was a woman who coined the term compiler. It was women who were writing the early assemblers and the early systems code. It was women who were working at Bletchley Park on breaking the Enigma codes during World War II. There were lots of women in our field, and that changed abruptly in the middle 1970s for reasons that I'm not completely clear on. So culture plays a big role in, in, our, in our particular part of the society. And it's somewhat negative. Okay, Bob. Thank you again. Yeah, okay. Like I said, I have a stream of questions, but I'd like to now we're going to pause the questions because I just re I remembered that, and I got a reminder also that we shall continue with the, with the, your slide presentation. Sure. And I think we're kind of missing that part. So please, by all means, uh, I'll turn on the screen to you. Thank you. Thank all you right. again. Thank you everyone for your questions, and thank you, Robert. Uh, back to you. All right, so by now you should have another thing on your screen, and let me change the slide. Um, another expectation that I would have of a software team is that they would always be ready. Now, by always, what I mean here is that every week or every two weeks, or maybe even as long as every three weeks, you should be ready to deploy. You should be ready to allow people to use your code. Um, if you're putting up a website, you should be able to deploy that website. If you're putting up an insurance system, that insurance system should be ready to deploy. You may not have enough features to deploy, but that makes deployment a business decision, not a technical decision. For example, maybe you got uh, log out working, but you haven't quite gotten log in working, but you're ready to deploy log out. Um, and the business would say to you, well, I'm glad you're ready to deploy log out, but it's not very useful without log in. And your response is yes, but log out is ready to deploy. That's what I mean by being ready. The work you have been doing should be ready to deploy on a regular basis, once a week, once every other week, Maybe if you absolutely have to stretch it to three weeks, do that. And I'd like it to be a regular rhythm. If it's once a week, let's make it once every week. Every Friday, you are ready to deploy. And what does it mean to be ready to deploy? It means you've tested it completely. It's been through the quality assurance process. You've got all the documentation written. The code is ready to go. There's no, no bugs. Nothing has to be done to it. You are ready to deploy it. So that then de real deployment becomes a business decision. The business simply always knows that on Fridays, the developers will be ready to deploy whatever they've got working. And then business can look and say, okay, well, hmm, I think we'll have enough features probably two Fridays from now and we'll deploy it then. Some of you may employ the tactic of a stabilization phase. Stabilization phases are used when you're done writing all the software for a release, but you just don't trust it. So then you run the system for a week or two weeks or three weeks, and you just kind of stare at it and wonder if it will fail. And you walk around it on tiptoes and you look at it like it might bite you. And after maybe three weeks, you think, well, it's loved, it survived this long, maybe it's ready to deploy. I would like you to, to abandon that practice. It's a, it's a very sad practice. What it means is that you've thrown the code together in such a matter that you don't trust it. You haven't tested it sufficiently, so you don't trust it. And you wonder what might go wrong with it, and so you stare at it for long periods of time, hoping nothing bad will happen seems to me that that's a very unprofessional way to behave. Can you imagine if, a, uh, if your uh, car mechanic did that? He gave you the car back and said, well, I'll drive it, but, you know, be careful because I don't know what's really going to happen. You'd never go back to that mechanic again. Same with us. 
we should know the status of our code. We should know if it's going to work. And I understand, you know, multi-threaded systems are really complicated and weird things can happen. We're going to have to get that under control. And there are ways to get that under control. And there are tools that help with multi-threaded systems. And there are disciplines that help with multi-threaded systems so that we don't have to worry. I wonder what that system is going to do. I expect something else. I expect stable productivity. And what this means is that I expect you to be able to get as much work done at the beginning of a project as you get done at the end of a project. How many of you have worked on a project, uh, started with a greenfield project, no code, it's a brand new project, and you've noticed that you can get miracles done in those first few weeks, right? Somebody comes to you and says, I need a feature, and you get your hands on the keyboard and code just pours out of you, and you get it done in no time. And the business looks at you and says, wow, that was fast. How did you ever do that? Oh, well, we're really good programmers. Well, can you do it again? Yes. And you write more code and more code comes out and you get lots of stuff done. You come back to that same group of developers a year later. Ask them to get some feature done. And they'll look at you and they'll say, oh, that's going to be tricky. No, no, I think that's going to take uh, months. Why is it going to take months? You used to get things done really fast. Oh, yeah, we did. But, boy, you don't understand how complicated that code has gotten. You know, if, if we touch the code in one place, it's liable to break somewhere else. No, no, no. It's going to be months. That's unstable productivity. You start out going fast, you end up going slow. And why did you end up going slow? Because you made a mess because you allowed the code to become tangled and interdependent and, and messy and have lots of duplication inside of it. You allowed the code to rot. And as the code rotted, you got slower and slower and slower. Not that you weren't working hard. Oh yeah, you're working hard, moving the mess around so that you can make the next mess. But your productivity, went down into the toilet. I don't expect that. I don't expect systems to start out fast and then end up being developed slowly. That seems to me to be unprofessional. You should keep the code clean. You should keep the code well organized. You should invest enough time in the early phases so that you don't destroy the ability to make progress in later phases. I expect fearless competence. Now, what does that mean, fearless competence? It means this. How many of you have brought code up on your screen and your first thought was, oh, that code's a mess. I should clean it. And your next thought was, I'm not touching it. Because you know if you touch it, you'll break it. And if you break it, it becomes yours. And so you back away. You say, I'm not going to be the one to clean this code. It's too risky. I'm not going to be the one. I submit to you this. If you react to the code this way, which is a fear reaction, if you are afraid of the code, then the only thing that can happen to that code is that it must rot. It must get worse and worse and worse because the only thing that could possibly clean it, you will not. You won't clean it. And so all that can happen to it is that it will get worse and worse and worse. And all the programmers will go slower and slower and slower. And the whole system must grind to some horrible, slow progress. And the business is going, what the hell happened? How, why are we going so slow? What I expect is fearless competence. I expect you to be unafraid of the code. So that you look at the code and you think on, you see it on your screen and you say, oh, that code's a mess. And I want your next thought to be, oh, I think I'll clean it. 
I think I'll change the name of that variable. That's a better name. I think I'll take that big function and split it into three little functions. I think I'll take that one little function and move it into a different class. I want you to behave that way. Now, how can you behave that way? How can you get rid of the risk? And the answer to that is what I was talking about before. If you have a suite of tests, and if that suite of tests tests everything, every line and every branch, and if you can run that suite of tests in three minutes, well, then you could clean the code. Because you'd run the tests and everything would work. And that would be enough for you to know that you probably hadn't broken anything. So then you could make a small change and run the tests again. And if they passed, you'd know you hadn't broken anything and you could make a small change and run the tests again. And you'd know you hadn't broken anything and you could clean the code. If you had a suite of tests like that, you would not be afraid. And when you looked at the code, you'd be able to clean it. You'd be able to keep it clean. You'd be able to improve it. You'd be able to make it better and better and better with every passing day. Think about that. If you had that kind of test suite, your code would get better and better and better, and everyone would go faster and faster and faster. How can you get a suite of tests that is that comprehensive? Wouldn't it take forever to write? Well, no, it takes forever to slog through the mess. The tests, they keep you going fast. That means you have to have a good discipline for writing those tests. You have to have a way to know that you are writing those tests properly and that you're writing all the tests you need to write. And that's where a discipline like test-driven development comes in. One of the reasons I expect people to adopt a discipline like this is so that they can have a suite of tests that allows them to behave like they are fearless and competent so that they can clean their code and keep their whole team moving fast. And you might be thinking, yeah, but it's impossible to get tests to run in three minutes. No, it's not. It's not at all. I submit it to you as a design challenge. I make it a design challenge to you. Design a suite of tests that will run in three minutes. I'm sure you can do it. I mean, just the, the raw math says that you can do it. I mean, how fast do these computers go nowadays? I'm sitting in front of a laptop that has a clock, clock frequency of 2.8 gigahertz, and there's four cores inside it, which means it's executing about 10 billion instructions per second. Does your whole system have 10 billion instructions in it? If not, well, then you ought to be able to test it in less than a second. Unless, of course, you are executing some instructions more than once. Now, of course, we do have to execute a few instructions more than once. But our design goal to keep our tests running fast is to limit the number of instructions that run more than once. So, simple question. How many times do you have to test login in order to know login works? The answer to that is once, maybe twice, maybe three times, depending on if there's different outcomes. Okay, so you test login and you know it works. Do you ever have to execute the login code again while you're doing other testing? And the answer to that should be no. You should be able to bypass the login code while you're testing other features. Here's another question. How many times do you have to test a database query to know that that database query works? The answer to that is, well, probably once or maybe twice or maybe three times, but not much more than that. Okay. How many times do you run a database query while you're testing the whole system? And if that answer is thousands of times, well, then you're executing that code too frequently and you need to design a way to short circuit the business rules from the database code so that you can run the business rules without executing all those queries a thousand times. Think about that. Think about that a lot. How are you going to design a test suite that allows you to push a button and within three minutes see a little green light that tells you that everything works? Now I'm going to, I'm going to head back to the, uh, 
to the main screen because there's probably some more questions and I think those will be our final questions. So I'm going to turn off my uh, screen share, which I think I've just done. If I did it right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now we can okay. see you again. <laughs> okay, yeah. And the timing is good because as you can imagine, there's a there's still a, a whole bunch of additional questions. Okay, here it is. Uh, actually, I have already selected one. Good. Uh, um, Tanya is asking, uh, and I assume I assume it's that's you, Tanya Nermosillo. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I only see your name. She says, "Who do you think is an average programmer? Because we always have either rock stars or noobs." Ah. What's the <laughs> there, that, that's Tanya's question. Uh, well, I don't know who the average programmers are. Of course, there is a range of programming talent. Um, and the number of rock stars is relatively small, and the number of, of very bad programmers is relatively small. And there's a very large number of, of very good, um, middle-of-the-road, effective programmers. Um, and, and those would be those folks that I would class in the professional professional organization. Those are the people that need to be professional programmers. Okay, thank you, Bob. Now, uh, this is a question by Elsa, Elsa Valderrama. I think she's in Hermosillo too. She's uh, asking, what's your opinion on services that close public domain specifications like XMTP or IRC? While it doesn't affect most people, it has an impact. What's your opinion on that? So I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Uh, if we're talking about services as in a service-oriented architecture, um, I think there are a lot of very good uh, techniques for breaking a system applic an application up into a bunch of little tiny services that communicate. And the, the topic lately that has gotten very popular is called microservices. Um, I think that name is a little bit silly, but okay. We break our application up into a bunch of small units, and we have those units communicate using some kind of protocol, um, maybe a socket protocol or maybe something else. I think that's a fine way of organizing systems. On the other hand, it's not the only way. It may not always be the best way. Um, it, it does facilitate decoupling, but there are other ways to decouple as well. So um, I wouldn't say that it's the best or only way to write systems, just a generally good way. I hope that's what she meant by services. I wasn't quite sure. Okay. Well, Tanya, that's your, uh, that's your uh, answer right there. So if uh, please let us know if Bob answered your question uh, satisfactorily, okay? All right, now, oh, by the way, uh, just a quick reminder, uh, and this I need to check in with you, Bob, because uh, of the time that we have. I mean, I I'm sure that no one here is going to complain if we stretch this a little bit, but I don't want to push it too much in terms of your availability. So uh, right now, it's uh, according to our clock here, we have uh, three minutes left for the broadcast, but and we still have a lot of questions. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that up to you to decide whether we should just simply pause here and then I could save the questions and then we can just I can email them to you, however you feel it's more convenient. Well, let's, let's take a few more and then uh, maybe about five after we should stop. Five. Okay, great. Okay, guys, so uh, I'm going to read as many as I can in that short time frame and... Uh, <laughs> And also, I don't know if we're going to have time to finish the, uh, the slideshow, but okay, here we go. Here's a couple more. And this is by Rafael, uh, Rafael Antonio here in Mexico City. He's asking, do you think the discipline of uh, TDD, which I assume it's test-driven development, is enough or do we need something else? Uh, we definitely need other things besides test-driven development. Uh, there's a whole suite of disciplines that I like to use. Disciplines uh, of things like continuous integration, acceptance testing, small releases. There's a whole realm of, of disciplines that, that I believe are important. Test-driven development is one of the ones that has the most profound impact on the 
minute-by-minute minute behavior of programmers. So it's the one I mention first, but there are many, many others. Okay, thank you, Bob. There you go, Rafael. Um, here's another one, again by Rafael. Um, well, let's just give it a give a little slot to someone else. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Why Rox Munoz? Mm, she asks. Uh, he's asking. I'm sorry. Uh, why do you think that a lot of programmers has a lot of objections about TDD, and were you afraid of something? Um, change. People are afraid of change. And no one wants to be told that for the last five years they've been doing something wrong. So when, um, when they see this test-driven development discipline, they look at it and say, well, I, I never did that before, and, and why should I do that now? I can answer that, though. Um, and I'd like you to think about what we as programmers do. We manipulate symbols, very arcane symbols, into our source code. And every one of those symbols has to be right. Um, if you hand me your source code, I can find a single character in that source code and change it to a different character. And I can either make your code so that it doesn't compile or worse, I can make it so that it doesn't work. Our code is sensitive at the single symbol level. It all has to be right. Very few engineers have that problem. Um, mechanical engineers, for example, um, if you take, start taking bolts out of, uh, out of the supports for your building, the building's not going to fall down right away. If you uh, start cutting cables on a bridge, that bridge isn't going to fall down right away. They're not sensitive at the single token level, but code is. Now, who else has that problem? And the answer to that is accountants. Accountants have that problem. Every symbol that they manipulate has to be correct. Otherwise, well, if they write a spreadsheet and that spreadsheet's wrong, they can take the whole company down and send the executives to jail. So how is it that accountants manage to get all their symbols right? And the answer to that is that they have a discipline. And the discipline is called double entry bookkeeping. Every transaction gets entered two times. Once on the asset side, once on the liability side, they follow separate pathways until they wind up on a, on a single subtraction on the balance sheet that must yield a zero. And that's how they check their work. They enter the transaction on the asset side, on the liability side, they do the sums, they subtract, they get a zero. They do the next transaction, asset, liability, sum, zero. Next transaction, asset, liability, sum, zero. And that's how they know they haven't made a mistake. Test-driven development is double-entry bookkeeping. They're the same discipline done for the same reason because of the same issue. Do accountants have deadlines? Yeah. Do managers breathe down their necks and say, we got to have those spreadsheets right away? Yeah. Do the accountants respond to that by saying, okay, guys, do all the assets, skip the liabilities, we'll do them later. The answer to that is no. They go to jail if they do that. This is where we have to get. By the way, um, it took 500 years for the world to adopt double entry bookkeeping. Accountants resisted it for a half a millennium because it wasn't the way they were used to working. I hope it takes us less than 500 years. Okay. Thank you, Bob, one more time. And final question. Unfortunately, guys, we don't have uh, time for any more questions, but I'll make sure that I'll do the best as a, the best I can to save them all and send them to Bob and whenever he, if he has a chance to get back to you. Now, uh, this is by Dan Valle, another one of the, of the viewers. He's asking, uh, do you think we can change the ain't no time for testing mindset on the organizations and how can, how can we approach them without losing our jobs? So I think that's a really good question. And the, the, first, the first answer to that is this. You don't ask your organization if you can write tests. You write tests because that's how you write code. You follow test-driven development because that is the mechanism you use to write code faster than any other way. If you believe 
that writing tests makes you go faster, and it does, by the way, but if you believe that, then of course you're going to write tests because it's the fastest way to get done. And if somebody says to you, well, I don't want you to write those tests, then you have to lengthen all your estimates because, oh, well, that means it's going to take me longer to get done. As long as you understand that writing tests makes you go faster, you're going to write the tests. Now, the other side of that is this. You do not ask your boss if you can wash your hands after going to the bathroom. You should not ask your boss if you should write tests after writing code or before writing code for that matter. The same kind of thing. It is a discipline that you follow, a matter of common decency, that you are going to write tests. Of course you are going to write tests. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a, that's a very good question, answer. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. All right. Well, here's the thing. Um, we're approaching the, the, um, the final minutes of Dojo Live. And, um, well, I'd like to do something. This is kind of an unusual thing. Uh, but uh, in the last, uh, I mean, we don't, I think, I don't think we were going to have the time to finish this, this slide show, unfortunately. We, I mean, we. Oh, I, I, I never have time. Yeah. No, that's fine. Actually, the, I, I'm sure God, the guys here are going to be appreciative of everything that we're doing, that you're doing for them. Now, finally, I'd like to do something here, if I may, um, for the last minutes of... I lost your sound. I lost your sound. You can hear Good, good. Okay. I lost your sound. Okay, you can hear me, right? Yes. Okay, I'm going to show you what these guys. I lost your sound. Are. You can hear you. Good. Good. You have, you have a very good, a very nice crowd in here. You see them? I do. Hello. Okay. <laughs> so they're, they're all watching. I'm show you what these guys. They're all watching us right there on the big screen. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Bob, on behalf, on behalf of myself and uh, the crowd here, thank you for everything. <laughs> You're all very welcome. It's good to talk to you. Okay, you and I are going to be in touch because we're going to be sending you a small token of appreciation. Thank you very much. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. You're all very welcome. Okay. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the broadcast now. Okay. Appreciate it. See you next time. Bye bye. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com. Thank you.